6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Fall of Man. We are now in hour two of Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, in which we're going to address the creation and the fall of man. And let me just say right at the outset, of all the sessions we're going to have, this one is undoubtedly the most frustrating. And it's not because of the biblical material, it's because of the presuppositions and prejudices we bring to this topic. Because we've all grown up in a pagan culture in which there's an enforced theory in science called evolution and the myths and nonsense that gets promoted in our schools and throughout our culture are one of the things that we need to overcome. Our problem isn't the Bible, our problem is bad science, poor science. But let's just jump in. We obviously are in the Old Testament. We're in the first book of the Old Testament, the first book of the Torah, the five books of Moses, book of Genesis. And we obviously are in our panorama of history, we're going right at the beginning the creation of time itself, not just the physical universe, but the creation of time itself. In this session, we're going to take three chapters, chapters one and two, which deal with creation, and chapter three, which deals with the predicament of mankind, the fall of man, and what God is doing to respond to that. There are actually only two worldviews. There are lots of different views, but they really categorize into one of two categories. Either everything is the result of a cosmic accident, and this is what we're taught in schools today, that we came from goo to you by way of the zoo, in other words. This idea of everything being the result of a cosmic accident is ridiculous, of course, but also we, it shouldn't surprise us then that our children have no sense of destiny. And how can they have if we are all just some kind of cosmic accident? The alternative view, worldview is that we are the result of a deliberate and highly skillful design, which implies, of course, that there's a designer. And in turn, that implies there's an accountability to that designer. All the different worldviews you might categorize fall into one of these two categories. And these things are important issues because it will lead to four basic questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? And why am I here? And where am I going to go when I die? These four basic questions are questions that every one of us has a belief about, an attitude about. It's critical, of course, because this will determine our destiny. It's interesting that the book of Genesis anticipates all false philosophies. Atheism is rebutted by the fact that we've been created by God. Pantheism, that the fact that God is everywhere, is nonsense. 
God is transcendent of his creation and distinguishable from it. Polytheism is rebutted in the book of Genesis. There is one God. Materialism is rebutted in Genesis because matter had a beginning and it also will have an end. Humanism, which is of course the official religion of the United States, as so declared by the Supreme Court, is rebutted by the fact that God, not man, is the ultimate reality. We're not the ultimate reality. We're simply pawns in a prize in a cosmic warfare. But God himself is the ultimate reality. And of course, the other thing that lurks behind all our discussions is this theory of evolution. And when we speak of evolution or evolutionism, we're not talking about the fact that there is adaptation within species. It's really uh, what we're dealing with here is biogenesis but we generally call it the theory of evolution. And that is, of course, rebutted by the Scripture because God deliberately and skillfully created each one of us. And uh, uniformism. Among scientists, there's an attitude that things have always been the way they are, that things continue as they always have been. And the Bible speaks differently. It says God intervenes. You know, not only at the creation, but during history. He intervenes in what's going on. And it's interesting, when, if you take a pair of binoculars and look at the moon or in any other planetary objects, we see them bitterly beaten up, pockmarked. It's clear that the solar system was a rough neighborhood. And so uh, the uniformism is, is a suspect premise even within a scientific context. Every major doctrine in the Bible has its roots in Genesis. Sovereign election, salvation, justification by faith, the believer's security, uh, the concept of separation, the disciplinary chastisement, the rapture of the church is even suggested here, divine incarnation, death and resurrection, the priesthoods, both the Aaronic and the Melchizedek priesthoods. The Antichrist even has his roots in here, and the Palestinian covenant, and on it goes. There are more than we could even list here. Let's just jump in and take the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, if you can embrace that sentence, you'll have no problems in the rest of the Bible. If you have problems with that sentence, uh, you'll have all kinds of difficulties. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's interesting that in the Hebrew, it, there are uh, seven words and 28 letters. And by the way, you notice that Hebrew, remember, goes from right to left. All languages flow towards Jerusalem. Nations that were east of Jerusalem wrote from right to left. Nations that are west of Jerusalem write from left to right. Western Europe, we have Greek, Latin, uh, English, of course, and so on, Spanish, what have you, all go from left to right. If you go east of Jerusalem, whether it's Hebrew, Aramaic, Sanskrit, what have you, it goes from right to left. I don't know what you do with that piece of information, but I had to throw it out there. There are over 300,000 letters uh, in the Torah, but we're taking 28 of them here. And we actually could be spending a week of study on just these letters. So notice the first word is Bereshit, in the beginning, or technically, in beginning. Then the word bara, in the beginning bara, God created out of nothing. There are three different words that could be used here. Asa, which means to make or fashion, fabricate if you will, but of something else. Yatsa, which means to form something. 
But these are not the words used here. The word bara means to create out of nothing. All three of these words are in Isaiah 43:7. They each have obviously a different sense. But the other thing I'd like to comment on without trying to uh, beat this to death is the word Elohim, the word God there. Bereshit bara Elohim. The word Elohim, you, whether you realize it or not, probably know enough Hebrew to realize that that's a plural noun. Certain categories of Hebrew nouns suggest the plural by an I-M ending. Cherub is singular, cherubim is plural. A seraph is singular, seraphim are plural. Elohim is a plural noun. But what's strange about its usage in the Bible, it's always used as a singular noun. It technically is a grammatical mistake. It's a hint in the very structure of the first few words of the Torah of the Trinity. And we'll, the Trinity is all through the Old Testament, but that's a separate study, but just be sensitive to that. But there are a number of basic questions. Is the universe 15 billion years old? That's the conventional wisdom among astronomers, of course, 15, 16 billion. Or was it created in six days, in 144 hours? How many of you here believe the universe is 16 billion years old? Okay, how many of you believe that the universe was created in literally six days? My hand is up in both cases. And that may surprise you because both may be true. It always bothers me when I find Christians who are sophisticated in Einstein's theory of relativity badger this because from Einstein's theory of relativity, you have to beg the question, whose clock are you talking about? And I'll show you what I mean here in a minute. But there are many Christians that have trouble with the six-day concept. And there's actually a large group of scientists that have published a book in six days, over 50 of them, expressing why they believe the universe was created in six days. Or was the light just created in transit? Were the aging factors built in, the tree rings that suggest more and so forth? These things are an issue to many Christians because they want to cling to the idea of being scientifically accurate on the one hand, and yet they have, they're troubled by the fact the Bible says clearly six days. Or were the days more than 24 hours? Were they actually geological eras? There are many authors that write books trying to present a Christian viewpoint, try to make this 16 billion year age of the universe compatible with the scripture. And our problem, of course, is not Genesis. It turns out to be Exodus. I'll come to that. The great discovery of 20th century science was that we live in a finite universe, which means it had a beginning. And the way they tried to explain that beginning is with a family of theories called the Big Bang models, which essentially say first there was nothing, and then it exploded. And that may sound facetious, but that's literally what they say. The first one was the steady state model that Einstein himself admitted was his biggest mistake because it was discredited. Then there was a concept, a hesitation model, but that was refuted in the 1960s. Then there was an oscillation model that expanded and contracted and so forth. And that's refuted by the entropy laws and lack of mass and other issues. The current models are basically a variation of what they call the inflation model. The problem with this model, it requires anti-gravity forces that have never been observed, and it has a number of other problems. I won't uh, 
tear these all apart, but the whole Big Bang area is an area of continual adjustments and hypotheses and unprovable uh, theories and so forth. There's interesting, there is a stretch factor of the universe. It apparently is expanded by a factor of 10 to the 12th, according to conventional wisdom, which is based on the temperature of the quark confinement when matter frees out energy, and I won't go into all of that. Namely, this 16 billion year life of the universe, if it would be an expression uh, of the expansion factor. But what's interesting, Dr. Gerald Schroeder, who is a, one of the world famous nuclear physicists, he participated in the atomic bomb tests and so forth. He has his residence in Jerusalem. He wrote a marvelous book called Genesis and the Big Bang. Now, he's not a Christian, he's a Jew, brilliant scientist and delightful friend. Uh, we spent a Passover together in his home. But it's interesting, if you take that expansion factor of 10 to the 12th, the 16 billion years represent uh, essentially 6 billion billion days, or 10 to 6 to the 10 to the 12th days. And if you divide that by the expansion factor of 10 to the 12th, that's what you get. You get six days. To look at an exponential expansion, day one by this would, would account for eight billion of those years, day two, four billion, two, a third day, two billion, and so forth. The, the sum being uh, 16 billion years as measured at the perimeter of the universe. So the real question is whose clock are you talking about? Adam wasn't on the earth when this was created. The only clock around was God's. And God clearly tells us that it is six days. We'll get to that shortly. But one of the things that we need to be sensitive to is that modern science has approached the very boundaries of our reality and have recognized that. There are two concepts in mathematics, if you're in school, that you cannot find in the physical universe. One of them is randomness. We often talk about random numbers, but you'll discover if you're in the computer field, there's no such thing as a truly random number. You have pseudo-random generators that will generate numbers that have many of the properties of random numbers, but true randomness is an elusive concept. And uh, most of us have been trained with what's called deterministic models, uh, equa like equations, F equals MA or whatever that you learn in science. But there's another field of study of stochastic models in which the, 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 it includes random variables. The field of advanced statistics uh, would uh, be embraced by the, this area. If you really study this area, you discover that the best you can get are pseudo-random numbers. Randomness is an elusive concept. That leads to a new theory in mathematics called the chaos theory, which deals with these issues. But randomness is very elusive to actually find. Well, that's exactly what the scripture says, by the way. It says the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. So he's in control. Albert Einstein said God does not play dice. That was one of his rebuttals to some of these theories. And I always enjoy that because if God did play dice, the reason he doesn't play it, if he did, he'd win, right? But moving on, the other concept that you cannot find in the universe, surprisingly enough, is infinity. We can conceive of it, we can deal with it mathematically, but we find it elusive. In the macrocosm, the universe itself, you think by looking through a telescope, if it was good enough, you could see the, finally uh, see the fringe of the universe. The universe is finite, and it uh, is not infinite. That's one of the great discoveries of modern science. But at the microcosm, that is in the, in the area of smallness, we're also startled to discover there is a boundary to smallness. 
You and I would think that if we took a line and cut it in half, we could take what's left and cut that in half again. And you would think, at least conceptually, you could do that forever. However small you get, whatever's left, you could always cut in half. It turns out that's not true. There is a length, it happens to be 10 to the minus 35 centimeters, which if you cut it in half, it no longer has locality. Subatomic particles have a property that physicists called non-locality. The whole field of quantum physics is based on the discovery that whether you're talking about length or energy or mass or time, all these things are made up of indivisible units, things that you cannot split any, uh, any smaller. We find ourselves then, as we examine these two boundaries, we are in a, a, a subset of a larger reality. We're bounded by quantum physics on the small end and a limited cosmos on the large end. We are in a virtual reality of a larger universe. The Planck length turns out to be 10 to the minus 33 centimeters that you can't make get smaller than. Planck time, you cannot find a unit of time smaller than 10 to the minus 43 seconds. Now, those are very small, but the point is they're indivisible. And that has profound implications in understanding our world. We are in a digital simulation. This podium looks, feels like it's solid. It actually is not by a factor of 10 to the 15th, strangely enough. And we'll get into that in a moment. But the what we think is reality is actually a virtual reality within, in fact, a digital reality within a much larger context. And we can't see beyond our, our reality, but we know that we are a subset by uh, what we observe. Now, let's talk a little bit about physical chronometers. Many of us talk about radiometric dating, carbon-14 dating, and so forth. And the trouble with this form of dating, it's based on some assumptions. It's based on a known clock rate, that the clock was set accurately at the beginning, and the clock was not disturbed during the measure. And it turns out that these are frail assumptions to build long estimates of time on. This leads to a whole division in science of uniformitarianism, which means things have always been the way they are, or catastrophism, that where we are as a result of past catastrophes, collisions, and so forth. And the evidence is all in favor of catastrophism. And all you have to do to convince yourself of that is get a pair of binoculars and take a look at the moon and explain how those craters and things happened by uniformitarianism. It's astonishing to discover there are a number of indicators that indicate that our Earth is far younger than is commonly taught. The amount of moon dust, oil gushers, the Earth's magnetic field, the Mississippi River Delta, the salinity of the oceans, the pointing Robertson effect, I'll come back to that, and radio halos, there are 95 of these listed by Walt Brown in his books on evolution and so forth, and I, I encourage you to take a look at those. Let's talk about moon dust. See, the lunar surface is exposed to direct sunlight and strong ultraviolet light and x-rays. These can all destroy the surface layer of the exposed rock and reduce them to dust. And it does this at the rate of a few ten thousandths of an inch per year. But even this minute amount during the age of the moon could be sufficient to form a layer several miles deep. But that's uh, not what they find, of course. There's only a few thousand years worth of dust found. 
Sounds strange, but that's an indicator of the age of the moon. The Earth's magnetic field. Its half-life is calculated to be about 1,400 years. And based on measurements taken from 1835 to 1965, it also generates estimates of an age of the Earth of something less than 10,000 years. Now, if extrapolated back 20,000 years, the joule heat generated would liquefy the Earth. So you're getting some real equations here to analyze that uh, suggest, obviously, a young Earth. The Mississippi River Delta. There's approximately 300 million cubic yards of sediment that are deposited in the Gulf of Mexico by the Mississippi River each year. Analysis of that volume and the rate of accumulation and dividing the weight of those sediments deposited annually, the age of the delta appears to be, guess what, about 4,000 years. The salinity of the oceans, uranium, sodium, nickel, magnesium, silicon, potassium, copper, gold, molybdenum, and bicarbonate concentrations in the oceans are much less than would be expected if these elements and compounds were being added to the oceans at the present rate for thousands of millions of years, as is commonly taught in our schools. Nitrates and uranium do not break down or recycle like salt does. As you get into the details here, they're, they're, they're rather telling. This all implies that our oceans are a few thousand years old. There's another effect, the Pointing-Robertson uh, effect. You might look at it like a solar janitor. It may help you remember it. Photons, these subatomic particles, slow down the forward movement of objects in space. They eventually they, they collide with these. They're very small particles, but they're still real particles. The solar drag force exerted upon micrometeoroids causes the particles to spiral into the sun. Because they slow down, they eventually get attracted by the sun's gravity. The sun is sweeping space at the rate of about 100,000 tons per day. And there's no known source of replenishment. And so the current abundance speaks again for a young universe. There's also what they call radio halos. Primordial polonium-218 has been found in mica and fluorite. You say, so what? Well. Polonium-218 has a half-life of only three minutes. So this is evidence of an instantaneous crystallization of the host granite concurrent with the formation of the polonium. And this speaks also of an instantaneous creation. And these are just a few samplings that if you get into the subject, uh, be prepared to dig deeply because most of what we've been taught in schools is myths and legends and falsehoods. Well, let's, let's get on to the second verse in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. This happens to include a Hebrew phrase that's been the subject of a great deal of provocative speculation. Without form and void in the Hebrew is tohu v'bohu without form and void. The problem is, is that when you get to Isaiah 45, 18, you find an interesting verse. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. And there's the same word there. Created not Tohu Vubohu. 
So there seems to be a contradiction here. And whenever you find a contra apparent contradiction in the Scripture, rejoice, because there may be a discovery hidden behind that. The other problem with this verse is the, is the uh, word was. It happens to be a transitive verb. It really should be translated became. It implies somebody being the result of an action. An example of that in, it, we find later in Genesis where Lot's wife became a pillar of salt. The, word, the same word. It, it implies action on a direct object. And so when you put this all together, the way some people would translate this verse, the first verse, no problem. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Period. New subject. But, and that's another issue, the conjunction there is an adversive conjunction. In other words, both the Septuagint in the Greek and also the Latin Vulgate make that point. It's not and that's neutral, but it's, it's an adversative conjunction. So it should be translated, but the earth became without form and void, and darkness is upon the face of the deep. And because of this possibility, this is controversial, so I don't want you to necessarily buy into it, just be aware of this viewpoint, but there is a view by some scholars that there is a gap implied between verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, period. Great, no problem. But the earth became without form and void, and darkness is on the face of the deep, maybe for eons. And the Spirit of God hovered or brooded over the face of the waters. This view I'm suggesting here was originally proposed by Thomas Chalmers in 1814. And these views are supported by people like G.H. Pember, Donald Gray Barnhouse, G. Campbell Morgan, Arthur Constance, and uh, others. And it's highly speculative, but it does seem to tie with some other scriptures. And one of the issues it needs to deal with, it has nothing to do with dinosaurs and that sort of thing. We'll come to that. But it does raise a possibility, because the, one of the questions that we ask ourselves is, when did Satan fall? You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station, or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.